Well, good morning. It's good to be here. As uh, Pastor Brad just said, my name's Wally, and I'm also part of the pastoral leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and it's good to be together this morning. And today we are, as he said, taking a break. If you've been tracking with us, um, we've been in a series called This We Believe, where we've been exploring the various articles of our Mennonite Brethren Confession of Faith. And last Sunday, we focused in on article number four, which was on evil and sin. And we're using that sort of as a, as a springboard, a platform to go into our sub-series now in Lent uh, called Hooked, which is focusing in on temptation. And we want to explore over the, today and the next three weeks what does temptation look like as it inserts itself between God's desires for us and our own personal desires. How do we live with the daily reality of temptation? And how do we learn or how do we grow in our stance against it? It's a question that has plagued humanity from the onset, and it's a question that will plague humanity long after you and I are gone. In fact, uh, one of the great Roman general, Mark Anthony, if you know your history, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, the great Roman general, one of his tutors said about Mark Anthony, he said to him, Oh, Anthony, oh, colossal child, able to conquer the world, and yet unable to resist temptation. There's not a person here in the room today, there's not a person on the globe that you can think of, friends, that doesn't deal with on a daily, consistent basis with temptation. We all face it, so let's talk about it and how we can plan to stand against its destructive intentions in our lives. So I think it's important that we begin this morning with talking about the difference between trials and temptations, because the two things are very different, and yet often in our language and in our conversations, we interchange them, and we, need, we shouldn't be doing that. Trials are ordeals, circumstances that test our faith with the intention of growing it, with the intention of drawing us closer to God. And normally there's nothing inherently sinful about a trial or a challenge. It's usually simply a hardship or a trouble, a circumstance that we're facing that, that maybe we've brought upon ourselves or that's coming against us from outside of ourselves, and it's generally not inherently evil. So if you have your scriptures, or if you have an app on your Bible, there's, one, uh, there's a Bible on our Jericho app if you have that. Let's turn to James chapter 1. James is found towards the end of the New Testament. James chapter 1. And James in chapter 1 addresses both trials and temptations. And we're going to first look at what he says about trials. Chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. Dear brothers and sisters... When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. And then through the next several verses down to verse 12, James talks about trials and their connection to God and how we are to, called to persevere in them and grow in our faith through them. And friends, we have examples throughout the scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, of people being tested, not tempted, but being tested so that they can grow in their faith. Classic one that we often think of first off is the person of Job. Job, wealthy, rich, um, obedient to God, uh, had it all, so to speak, and then comes under significant testing and, and trial when he has everything removed from him, including his, his children all that taken away. 
Another person that I can think of is the prophet Elijah. Again, a prophet speaking on God's behalf, talking uh, and challenging people to draw closer. Elijah comes to the point in a deep, deep depression of wanting to, to die, of wanting to commit suicide. Another person is the person of John, who uh, wrote the Gospel of John and, and writes uh, the book of Revelation. Later on in John's life, again a disciple, a follower of God, he's exiled to a remote island. Not because of sin, but again, a trial, a test. What's happening? Those people and many others in Scripture, and those of us today who are experiencing that, weren't ex we're not experiencing punishment in those uh, situations because of sin in our lives. Actually, what's happening is a deconstruction of our faith. In places where we don't correctly understand God or where we perhaps don't correctly uh, or f fully understand God. And God wants to change some things that are happening in our faith walk, in our understanding of who he is. He deconstructs, places us in situations of deconstruction so that we can have our faith reconstructed. So that we can come to a more full understanding of who God is in various aspects of our lives. So God can and he does use trials, testing as a normal part of our life. A normal part of our life. Now temptations. Temptations also a normal part of our life. But when we get to temptation, there's a big difference between trials. Back to James chapter 1. Scoot down to verse 12. Uh, verse 13, actually. Again, in 2 to 12, he's talking about trials. But then in verse 13, he starts to talk about temptation. Verse 13. Remember when you are being tempted. Do not say God is tempting me. God is ne never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. So the concept here has changed from the trials of an, uh, an, an ordeal coming against us, causing us to... Uh, persevere and work through so that we draw closer to God, to the idea of something that is now soliciting us towards evil. Soliciting us towards evil. The great theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who um, studied and wrote during the Nazi regime and was killed by the Nazis, I think in 1945, he wrote an, a, 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 an excellent uh, description of temptation that I'd like to read. It's a little bit long. So bear with me, it'll come up on the screen, but I think it's one of the best descriptors of temptation that we have. Bonhoeffer writes, in us, in our members, there's a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once, secret smoldering fire is kindled within us. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us as we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. And only desire for the creature is real. Satan doesn't fill us with hatred for God, but with forgetfulness of God. Tremendously insightful. Satan doesn't fill us with hatred of God, but for forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of a person in deepest darkness. 
The questions present themselves as, is what my flesh desires really sin in this case? And is it really not permitted me? Yes, expected of me now, here in this particular situation, to appease this desire. And it's here that everything within me rises up against God, and I forget him. Friends, there's not a person in this room or on this earth that hasn't experienced that solicitation, that invitation towards sinful desire, including Jesus when he walked on the earth as a human being. Webster's describes temptation as being enticed to do wrong by a promise of pleasure or gain. That's what Jesus experienced when the evil one approached him in the wilderness. He promised to give him those things that would, be, uh, that would provide incredible pleasure, incredible gain, kingdoms. And there's not a human being on earth except Jesus that hasn't yielded to those temptations, that deceptive call for pleasure and gain. Temptation, friends, is a part of being human. It's a part of our everyday lives. So what do we need to know about temptation if we're going to recognize it on a daily basis, on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, and how are we going to be able to stand against it? There's many things that we could talk about, but I'm going to give you four facts about temptation. First, as I just said, temptation is inevitable. Back to James chapter 1, verse 13. And remember when you are being tempted. James doesn't say, and remember if you are being tempted. He says, when. When you are being tempted. The simple fact is that we will never live life without temptation. You will never attain to a place in your life you may be dreaming of that place, but you will never get to a place in your life where you will be without temptation. If you think that somehow that is attainable, the moment you think you are arriving at that fabled place, you have brought with you the invitation for temptation because you bring with you your thoughts. And your thoughts are the avenue that Satan uses for temptation. Satan targets your thinking no matter where you are. Whether you're a monk living behind cloistered walls or whether you're average Mary and Joe living in Langley or Clayton, we all deal with temptation. Every one of us, it's inevitable. So first of all, temptation is inevitable. Second, temptation is never directed by God. God permits temptation, but he never directs it. God never leads us toward or into sin. Again, James chapter 1, verse 13, talking about God not being able to be tempted to do evil and that he doesn't tempt. Remember when you're being tempted. Do not say that God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Hebrews 4.15 expounds on that, going back to the time that, that Satan attacked and tempted uh, Jesus in the wilderness. But he says, G, uh, the author of Hebrews in chapter 4 says, but Jesus would not succumb to those temptations because he knew the temptations and the solicitations for, for pleasure and gain were not coming from the will of God. 1 John 1, 5 says, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. What does that mean? That means that God cannot commune with evil. God can't even commune with the thought, the intent 
of evil. And so then he cannot direct us into it. When temptation is presented to us by the evil one, the choice to follow through in sin is our choice. That's my choice. As Bonhoeffer said, the focus of temptation is to separate us from God, to have us forget about God so that my focus, our focus, turns solely on the self. So when you're faced with sin, don't pull an atom. Don't try to point the finger at somebody else and ultimately imply that this is God's fault for somehow directing your path towards that. That's the exact thought that James is trying to contradict. God isn't even indirectly somehow engaged in the act of temptation. God permits evil. He allows temptation to exist, but he is wholly other, wholly with an H, wholly other, and he has no part in the process that leads to it. He never authors or directs temptation. Third characteristic of temptation is that it's an individual matter. I just talked about that. Our desires can't be blamed on God. It can't be blamed on other people. James chapter 1, verse 14. Temptation is directed at self, myself. Listen to how James writes about it. Verse 13. Remember, when you're being tempted, don't say God is tempting me. It's not God's issue. He's never tempted to do wrong. He never tempts anyone else. Verse 14. Temptation comes from our own desires, from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. So whenever we choose to engage temptation, it's an individual matter. It's on me. It's my issue. I can't point the finger at you. I can't point the finger at my wife. I can't point the finger at the other driver that caused me to swear at him and and stick up my finger at him and want to run him off the road and wish that he would never drive again. It's not him. That wasn't the issue. The issue comes back to me. Sin takes place when I agree to the temptation and follow it. It takes a willful agreement on my part and not till I give consent to myself and then begin to follow through with myself, my own actions, does temptation succeed and and, uh, carry on into the act of sin. And friends, the process that temptation takes to move us through to the culmination of sin is the same, which is the fourth fact. Temptation that leads to sin follows the same general process for all of us, all the time. Remember, being tempted is not a sin. Jesus was tempted and he was sinless. But that yielding to temptation is sinful and is destructive. And this is how James 1, 14 and 15 uh, describes the process of going from temptation to the culmination of sin. And we'll simply use a, um, a fishing analogy uh, Borrowing this from from Chuck Swindoll, uh, it's just a simple, basic uh, analogy. It's also kind of implied in the original Greek writing, the language that James is using. Um, How does this process unfold? Step one, very simply, the bait gets dropped. Step two, my inner desire is attracted to the bait. So the bait is particular for me. Somebody knows my weaknesses. Somebody knows my thought patterns. Somebody knows what is going to be attractional for me, the evil one. And then sin occurs when I yield first in my thoughts. First in my thoughts to allow myself to act towards taking the bait. And once I take the bait, 
then sin occurs, and it has tragic results. If you're using the fishing analogy, the fish is hooked, the fish is caught, the fish gets fried, the fish is gone. It's eaten. James 1, 14, 15 says it like this. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. That word entice, it's still, in the Greek language, it's still uh, basically a fishing term that gets used. When you fish, you've got to provide a bait that entices. Present that bait correctly, and eventually you will catch fish. It's the same process for us as humans. The bait is presented for us to lure us. Now, does that mean when the lure is presented, when the bait is presented, that you have to take it? When you're tempted, do you have a choice? Or is sin always the final outcome? Because after all, we are all sinners. None of us here is perfect. At some point, we all yield. Do we have a choice? We can, friends, become consistently um, better at standing against, not yielding to the temptations and avoiding that sin. So let's spend the last portion of our time together on this front. How do we do that? How do we become more consistent? How do we grow in our faith and mature to a place where we are recognizing and understanding this process that takes place with us every day? Temptation can be counteracted by a particular act, and that act is one of the fruits, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So in Galatians chapter 5, it lists the fruit of the Spirit. 22, verse 22, it says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. We like all those ones, and then there's self-control, and that's the word we're looking for. The word in Greek means in strength, which is what the Holy Spirit is providing, gifting to us, producing within us at that time, inner strength, in strength. One of the things that the Spirit does for us as Christians is it enables us to master self, inner strength, particularly when tempted. It's counteracted by the gift of self-control that the Holy Spirit imparts to us. Now, the temptation here is to say that this process is then all on God. It's God's issue. It's not something I do, but it's something that the Holy Spirit does in me. You just said, Pastor, that the Holy Spirit gives you this gift, this fruit of self-control, which leads us to a thinking that possibly that there's nothing really that I can do. It's actually all on the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit needs to give me that impetus of self-control at the right time and in the right way so that I don't sin. And if I do follow through with that temptation and sin, then that's because the Holy Spirit didn't show up when I needed him or he didn't show up in the way that I needed him or with the power that I needed him. So it's the Holy Spirit's issue, not my issue. Okay, God, you deal with it. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. That rationale, friends, is unbiblical and it doesn't work. If you try to passively deal with temptation, put it off and say it's all God's issue, you will end up in the same cycle over and over and over. You will be conquered every time. 
Yes, the fruit and the power of the Holy Spirit are available. Yes, self-control does come from God. And yes, self-control does empower us to resist temptation. But, friends, just like all the other uh, fruit, gifts of the Spirit, we have to receive it. And we have to engage it. And we have to nurture it and grow it so that we can activate it. So how do we do this? Briefly, we'll conclude, and these are, these are going to be quick, four concluding applications. First of all, our natural inclinations need to be counteracted. Openly understand your weaknesses. If, you, if you're not in the habit of, or if you haven't done it before, take time. Lent season is a wonderful time to do that. Take time to do a deep dive on yourself. What are your areas of weakness? What are your thought patterns? What are your habits? And be ruthless with yourself. Don't hide anything. Journal. Spend that time examining your humanity, your brokenness. And then, friends, use the scriptures and time in prayer with God to replace those areas of brokenness those areas that you know you're susceptible to, begin to replace and fill those areas with the truths that you find in Scripture. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he repeatedly quoted the truth that, uh, of Scripture. He used that as his framework, as his defense. So our personal, our natural inclinations need to be counteracted. And to do that, we have to understand and be aware of them. Second, practical application, guard your time. Guard your time. It sounds so simple, but in today's day and age, it's so difficult to do because we have so many uh, things that are coming and wanting our time, wanting our attention. It's nonstop. But friends, you need to cultivate a plan for how you're going to use your time both active and your leisure time, your downtime. When you understand how and where and when you're most susceptible to temptation, you can begin to anticipate it. You can begin to avoid placing yourself in those situations. Remember again, temptation begins with our thoughts, our thought process long before it ever presents itself in the reality of sin in our lives. So plan ahead. Choose wisely. Give yourself limits of where you're going to be, how much time you're going to spend doing what. Don't allow other things to control your time. Third, avoid isolation. Avoid isolation, but also screen your companions. Also screen who you spend your time with. It's always easier to yield to temptation when no one is watching. It's always e easier to, to contemplate and to uh, go through the process of rationalizing about temptation. Should I, shouldn't I? All the, when no one is there to hold me accountable and say, hold on, Wally. When I'm isolated, I'm much more susceptible. So careful of idle isolation. But at the same time, you need to evaluate. That doesn't mean just go out and busy yourself and be hanging out with whoever, whenever, doing whatever. You need to evaluate who you are spending your time with. Are they spending time with God? Are they spending time doing the things that we've talked about? Are they maturing and growing in their faith? And are they encouraging you and challenging you to do the same thing as well? 
The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, Now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, and right, and pure, and lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. As you put yourself into those, that mindset, are you then surrounding yourself with others who are encouraging that same mindset? So avoid isolation, but screen your companions. Fourthly, and this is, I think, one of the more challenging ones, accept personal responsibility. Accept personal responsibility. You choose to live in a relationship with Jesus. And when you don't live up to your end and your part of that relationship, admit it. Take responsibility. Take initiative by planning, implementing some of the things that we've talked about, having a, uh, these other steps in place. And again, that's not a comprehensive list. These are, you know, basics in terms of the time that we have to talk this, this morning. But put in that effort to engage self-control. Put in the effort to have your plan to grow as a Christian. But when temptation wins the moment, and we know it does, we know it will at some point, then take the time to be responsible. Confess your sin to yourself. Confess your sin to your God and then take the added step, the scriptural step of confessing that to somebody else, to another mature believer that you trust. James also says in chapter 5 of his book, is anyone among you in trouble? Well, let them pray. Verse 16 in chapter 5, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Friends, confession takes the power that sin gains over you and it eradicates it. Confession allows, uh, steps into the darkest places where evil and sin has control and has dominion and it removes you out of that into the light where God's mercy and forgiveness and grace can do the work that he wants to do in each one of us. But it's our choice. It's our responsibility to welcome him, to invite him, to beseech him to do that work in us. Just as I choose to give in to that temptation and I choose to place myself into that place of darkness and power under the, uh, uh, under the evil one, I then have the option, I then have the choice to ask for forgiveness through confession and to move back, to be moved back into the light through the power and through the forgiveness, the grace of Jesus Christ. Friends, it's not some mystical unattainable talent reserved for the very mature, the very experienced, or the very pious. Resisting, understanding and resisting temptation is something that all of us have the capacity to do. Anyone who follows Jesus can do this. You remember, you've heard that, that verse in Philippians chapter 4.13, I can do all things through Jesus who gives me that strength. That includes resisting temptation. But it doesn't just happen automatically. We need to engage. We need to learn about it. We need to learn about ourselves and who we are 
as temptation comes against us. We need to act and we need to take responsibility in conjunction with what the Holy Spirit is doing within us. And then in James, back to James chapter 1, verse 12. Listen to those who persevere in this. Listen to those who engage and put steps in place in their lives to resist temptation. Verse 12, James says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. He blesses you. Blesses you. Afterward, you will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those of you who love him. God's reward is there for us. I'm going to invite the worship team, Jesse and his team, to come up. As they come up, we're going to invite our prayer team to head to the back and be available there as well. And perhaps today you are simply tired of living in the same repeating cycle. And you wonder, why can't you get over that hump? What's going on? Or perhaps today you, you want to strengthen your stance. Perhaps you're enduring a season of increased temptation, increased oppression from the evil one. And you're saying, Lord, I want, to, I want to persevere even more so in this area. I want to come and strengthen my faith in this area. Or perhaps today you want to take responsibility for this area in your life. And you want to move into a time of confession. You can do that in response to God as we worship, but I encourage you and I challenge you to step into that time of confession with another person. You can do that with our prayer team. We have Pastor Brad and Katie Kwan at the back. I'll be at the back as well. And you can move into a time of taking responsibility. Is, are these things comfortable? Are these things natural? Are these things that we just like, oh, yay, I can do this? No, they take effort. They take determination. They take a conscious will on our part to engage. And so, friends, I'm going to invite you to stand. This is our time to respond to God. This is our time to respond to him in worship. Let's stand together. We can respond in our time of singing. You can be in prayer during that time right where you are. You can join one of the uh, prayer team members also at the back. So let's worship together. God of mercy. God of forgiveness, God of grace, who implores you to come to him, to grow in your faith in him, and know that there is a reward for those of us who persevere and stand against temptation. Let's sing together. <laughs>